Hello, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Sam Underwood and Valerie Curry. Sam and Val are the producing pair behind Initiative 26, and Initiative 26's latest initiative is to produce the canon, Shakespeare's canon, in celebration of the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Welcome, guys. Hi. Thank you for having us. So what was the inspiration behind doing the entire canon other than the anniversary of Shakespeare's death? Why, why this crazy project? Basically, we, we got drunk on New Year's <laughs> Eve at dinner, and I throw my best ideas at Valerie when I've had a couple of glasses of wine, and we were just talking about like how we don't get to do Shakespeare often. I was like, great, let's do the whole canon this year. <laughs> Which, to be honest, that sort of attitude of, here's a crazy idea, let's do it, we're going to do it, and then actually doing it is kind of the, the hallmark of our relationship, our partnership, and the reason behind the name initiative as well. That we just Yeah, the reason why Val and I particularly wanted to explore the entire canon, number of reasons, really. First of all, our vocabulary on Shakespeare, you know, up until January 1st, 2016, was only limited to about six plays each, you know, and... And, and it, for me, it's something where I keep saying so many of us haven't sat down and read the canon or consumed it since school and when we did it was not not really with an open mind necessarily um (laughs) you know we're just kind of trying to get through desperately flipping the pages of Mary Wives of Windsor most people can talk about their favorite tragedies and much ado about nothing because they saw the movie well and and also with that like what we're trying to do this year we're doing the plays in chronological-ish order so that we get to see the progression of Shakespeare's writing and see the development of his of his plays over time. The other thing as well that has come to be one of the driving forces behind it is it's not really about results. It's more of an exploration. Yeah. It's more of a lab. Yeah. And so we're giving ourselves and everyone who's part of it opportunities to explore the text in new ways and read characters they would never get to read or take on new perspectives on the uh, on the pieces which has been I think for my part the most fun and um, exciting aspect to this project that's really kept it new and alive and accessibility is really what we as a producing body are all about all of our work is about accessibility it's about character it's about how the characters and the stories are relevant yeah and when I say in a contemporary perspective it's more with our contemporary sensibilities and that's been a really interesting thing to unpack in terms of just the sexism in the stories as well oh, in the plays so we just did yeah. of the truth of course well and, yeah. we, and we did Julius Caesar last night and even just mm. the recognition that oh every time there's a, a man kind of dealing with something Shakespeare introduces a woman to go husband what's the problem let me tell me what your problems are. And he's like, no, no, no way. No, I can't possibly do this with you. So where are you in terms of your progression through the canon? You're doing it chronologically, more or less you said. So where are you? We started off with a marathon day, which was exhausting. Surprisingly uh, fun. Surprisingly fun. Um, so we started with the Henry VI plays, all three of those. We, yeah, I, oof, I, sh- I should oof. preface this by saying each reading involves a lot of wine. A lot of wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We caroused to his name. And then we did Comedy of Errors was next, which was a great like kind of really breath of fun, fresh air. Man. I had no idea how absolutely brilliant and simply fun it, Comedy of Errors is. It was really great. I forget that this play has like three pages of your mama so fat jokes in it. it <laughs> yes. Yeah. So after Comedy of Errors, we did uh, Richard III was next. And then we did mm-hmm. Titus Andronicus and we cast a woman as Titus, which was kind of one of the first exploratory things we yeah, wanted to. Yeah, because that, that's something I wanted to explore for a while for the character and for the relationships with between Titus and Tamara. 
And so that was not gender blind casting, but very specifically casting her as a woman and then casting the rest appropriately around her. We were looking to see whether or not it really worked and whether or not it resonated for potential future production. Uh, well, did this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was better than I better than I had expected. Actually, it was born out of the fact that I I weirdly love the play. Me and like three other people. It's Shakespeare's Friday the Thirteenth. I think it's because I really love Tamara, and I've always seen her as a very human character. And looking at the play, you can see that this is all about parents and the extremes they'll go to for their children, and how that passion can make monsters out of us. And I really wanted to juxtapose Tamara with Titus as two mothers. Um, but it was really, it was really amazing to see, and so many things jumped out. The biggest thing that was kind of the echoed, I think, to me and Val was the fact that hearing a woman read Titus, we really picked up on the fact that the rest of the characters around Titus kept telling her what to feel, kept telling her how she should react to Lavinia, to all these things. How she was grieving wrong or not enough or too much, and and that was the thing people kept saying that they heard that for the first time because. It was being said to a woman, and that is a very socially normal thing that we're we're always trying to um, control how we express our emotions for other people. Mm. But that whole scene in Act Three, Scene One, after Lavinia appears and and Titus cuts off her hand, that was what jumped out the most over and over again. It was so much more profound to see Titus's reaction as a mother looking at her daughter and then forcing her son to say, "No, look on her," because she was the only character who could really look at. Lavinia and talk to Lavinia. I think we should set the scene a little bit and hear you read it. I'm I'm actually now really curious. We're speaking with Sam Underwood and Valerie Curry, New York-based actors, and today we're going to explore a speech from Titus Andronicus, Act Three, Scene One. And Valerie, you're going to be reading this scene for us, correct? Uh, with some help from Sam, yes. A couple of helps. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us, this is the speech by Titus, who's the title character. Mm-hmm. Who is Titus Andronicus? So Titus Andronicus, he's he's a war hero. He's a soldier, really. And she, she. well, she in our in our piece, yes, she's a soldier, and she's a mother who has buried most of her children. And she's offered the crown upon her arrival home, and she says, "No, no, I'm. This isn't fit for me." And she gives it to Saturninus, which is a huge mistake. He's awful. And, uh, awful in what way? <laughs> he's a politician. He's a, he's a child. <laughs> he's very uh, easily led astray. He, he doesn't have his own ideas. And he takes Tamara, the queen of the Goths, as his wife, who Titus brought home as a prisoner. And so she's got a lot of reason to hate Titus because Titus conquered her people, killed her children. So once she's got the crown, she's got a bone to pick with him. Uh-oh. So Titus has sort of unwittingly elevated his own prisoner of war yes. to the status of queen. Mm-hmm. And boy, does the queen have it in for Titus. Yeah. And in a way, understandably <laughs> so, you know, and in the beginning, she talks a lot about, um, you know, why are the actions of my children worth execution, but they're honorable in yours? I, I think she makes a fair point. I, I think she's, I, I actually think she's a great character, but then she does go on a vengeful rampage. How does this work out for Titus? Not well. It ends in a big meal. In a big, yes, it does. <laughs> So um, this is a character who I think at its core believes in the rule of law and justice. And so when her own son, she thinks rebels against her, she kills her own son. And this is also the beginning of the deaths of so many of her children. Two of her sons are framed for rape by Tamara and Tamara's sons at her bequest, rape and mutilate Titus's daughter Lavinia. So her children 
are either killed, absolutely ravished, or uh, Lucius is banished. So she's alone. And at the point in this scene, Aaron, the, the very devious, more lover of the Queen Tamara, tells Titus that her last two sons will be spared if one of them will give up their hand. So after much debate and much ado about who will cut off a hand, <laughs> Titus sacrifices her hand to get her children's lives. And that also doesn't work out very well. <laughs> <laughs> Titus, who, who in your production is played by a woman, sacrifices her own hand mm-hmm. to save her children. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you? The ones that are left at this point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to Act 3, Scene 1. Oh, sister, speak with possibility and do not break into these deep extremes. Is not my sorrow deep, having no bottom? Then be my passions bottomless with them. But yet let reason govern thy lament. If there were reason for these miseries, then into limits could I bind my woes. When heaven doth weep, doth not the earth o'erflow. If the winds rage, doth not the sea wax mad, threatening the welkin with his big swollen face? And wilt thou have a reason for this coil? I am the sea. Hark how her sighs doth blow. She is the weeping welkin. I, the earth, then must my sea be moved with her sighs, then must my earth with her continual tears become a deluge, or flowed and drowned. For why my bowels cannot hide her woes, but like a drunkard must I vomit them. Then give me leave, for losers will have leave to ease their stomachs with their bitter tongues. Thank you. Thank you so much. And and in that piece, in that passage, again, there's not only is she being told how to feel, which is kind of ridiculous, uh, after she's cut off her hand and lost all of her family, but also, again, we see that connection between the mother and the daughter. So if our listeners are following along with the text, we're looking at line 225, and the she who is the weeping welkin in this metaphor is who? We, we interpreted the she being Lavinia. Specifically, because a few lines before, she asks her to kneel with her and to sigh and will breathe the welkin dim and stain the sun with fog as sometime clouds when they do hunk him in their melting bosoms. Well, what's a welkin? It's a great word. I know, it's used a lot in this one. It's the sky and the heavens. This is when uh, Titus is essentially on her knees begging the gods for some sort of help or intervention or begging the people. And, and Marcus, her brother, even says, you know, no one hears you. No, one, no one's listening to you. Which, again, seeing a woman in that position and seeing women as the victims of war is very relevant and timely. Yes. What's also interesting is the conflict of reason versus emotion mm-hmm. in this scene. And Marcus starts by saying, let reason govern thy lament. And you're like, mm, I don't think so. Yeah, absolutely. And also because the cause for her laments are reasonless. It's absurd to suggest that reason govern her laments when she has every reason to go mad, as she does. This is an intriguing question, reason. Reason versus emotion. Where do you think Shakespeare, the author, comes down on the question of which is more important, reason or emotion? Maybe I should rephrase that. Which we should be guided by. I think when people get overly emotional, everyone in the play tends to die. Yeah, I mean, I I think in general, I think that argument is very much also kind of divvied up between the ideas of status as well. I think the people that are in high positions of whether you're a king or whether you're Titus who's come back and like is kind of someone very, very well respected... People need to install reason into them overall because they look to them for leadership. So when they yeah. start acting out of emotion, it is it's dangerous for everyone else because who knows what will happen. Like jumping forward to someone like Hamlet, who is the 
potential future leader of, of Denmark, he's acting so much out of emotion and total lack of reason because grief does that to you. That it leads you down a path of... It destroys uh, the state. Des- ex- yeah, it destroys the state completely. This is a, a timely question in an election year. Do you think that Shakespeare thinks that people need leaders who appeal to their emotions or are better served by leaders who appeal to their sense of reason? Well, that's funny because that's actually something that came up doing Julius Caesar reading the funeral scene, which really stood out to me when Brutus appeals to the masses with a very well-reasoned, thought-out legal argument that's written in prose. And then Mark Antony speaks for pages and pages, just whipping up the crowd with emotion and, and appealing to their grief. And neither one is really painted as the hero. I think for the most part, when emotions are actually embraced by a character, it seems to be like as if they're coming to the light, they're coming to a full awakening. Whereas if there's a coldness, if there's just a pure reason, they seem inaccessible and less human. It's about balance because the characters who are so reasonable and cold, it never, it doesn't work out well for for Brutus or Titus in the beginning when Titus thinks that she's doing the right thing or the legal thing, the best thing for the state. But then when we give ourselves over to emotion, mm-hmm. that is almost worse. And there has to be this balance. It's it's sort of the golden mean. And well, and I, and I think how it relates <laughs> nowadays with the, with the political rate, like for instance, there was an interesting article this morning that was out saying how the two front runners are winning people's votes, but they're not winning people's hearts. And I think that's actually really telling of what Shakespeare does a lot in his plays of like, yeah, people do seem to side with reason because they can understand reason. But once you capture someone's heart, you have them much more, you seem to have them in a much different place. I don't think Shakespeare makes a specific, like one specific choice. I think he's constantly balancing that argument. I think that's the great stuff about what he does. He never just presents a one one argument play. There's always like a balance to it. You know, people say that Merchant of Venice is an incredibly racist play. I think there's many arguments to be had of saying he's actually bringing to light the idea of racism and how we shouldn't be acting this way towards other people that are different from us. Well, let's bring it around to the actor for a second, because I think an actor, particularly in Shakespeare, has to balance reason and emotion. And this is this speech is a great example of a pre- of Shakespeare putting all the emotional life of the character into the words being spoken. And as actors, we know not to play emotions, but you have them. So where do you place them when working on such an emotionally wrought piece of text? What do you do with those big emotions as actors? Well, I mean, first of all, being able to access emotions when whenever the piece calls for it is really key to elevating so it doesn't just sound like poetry it, it, it feels like it's actually coming from someone's soul these words are coming out of that using your emotions at time when it's actually going to best impact those around you or move the story forward i mean we all know the the most awful you know masturbatory productions of hamlet are when we see some idiot who's just like just crying and and there's no it, there's no connection to anyone else Else because it's all this emotional roller it's coaster. Release, yeah. it's, it's just a release, and that doesn't bring the audience along with the journey. So I think emotion is key in the idea of capturing people's hearts and showing them a mirror to see, you know, how they too would react in this moment. I mean, for me, in terms of approaching mm-hmm. it. 
I always start from the text and the language and the rhetoric with which he wrote, because especially Hamlet, really, all those speeches that so many people do just use as these releases are actually these beautifully wrought arguments <laughs> with oneself. And it builds and it has, it, I mean, there's a real structure to it. And it's in the language, it's in the punctuation. And so much of Shakespeare is really grounded in that rhetoric. And having an understanding of it allows you to know when you can get emotional and when you're fighting the emotion because you always have to be in service to that thought process that's happening for the characters and they use verse to express it in the way that you know in a musical if you can't speak you sing right if you can't right, sing right. you dance like right. but it always has to be grounded in in that and what is being said and how it's being said and, and the need for it to be said and um often in spite of the emotion or having to, to fight the emotion that's there that's coming and that struggle to me especially in a character like hamlet to try to think to try to reason to try to, to build an argument despite these huge emotions happening, that struggle is what makes it interesting and active. So whenever somebody lets themselves over into just the release, it just sounds like noise. I agree. I agree to a certain extent. I think that it's so interesting that you're doing the canon because you get to see how Shakespeare develops these ideas <laughs> longitudinally for thousands and, and thousands of lines of verse where it's impossible for me to listen to this speech of Titus Andronicus and not think of King Lear. Mm -hmm. So here we have Titus teasing this metaphor about the, the heavens weeping and, and how that, that makes it impossible for him, or her in this case, to contain her emotions. It takes 11 lines, which nobody will ever remember. And then we get to King Lear where he says blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage blow, which is unforgettable. Right. Well, and also like grieving for the, the upcoming loss of your, of your child or of your father is uh, an idea which is constantly revisited in Shakespeare's plays. And again, yeah, just how those, he finds little seeds or little ideas that eventually he'll find the right play for it yeah. later or on. Or he just, works it and works, works it, it yeah. again and again until until we reach something like Lear or we reach something like Hamlet. Yeah, so Shakespeare like has these large ideas that he's teasing out through the course of his career, which is what we were talking about. And that's a fantastic journey for you guys to go on having just embarked on doing the canon. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The thing we tout all the time is the fact that, you know, 400 years after the guy died, like these stories are still so universal and resonant. The stories just kind of keep make, you know, kind of keep making us think. And that's the most special thing to me about Shakespeare's plays. They constantly tease our brains to, you know, like the opening, uh, like the opening of Henry V, making the audience work their thoughts. And I think that's just incredibly special for us and I'm seeing a person grow with their writing is like something so special for us as artists to be on that journey with him in a very kind of weird way 400 years after he died is cool well and we both have our roots our foundation our training and everything is in theater and so much of our career isn't there and it's definitely not in classical theater and I, I, I've said so many times how actually look forward to that time twice a year when I get to read Shakespeare in a room because I just savor the opportunity to speak the words. Well, I, I mean, I grew up specifically doing musical theater. So the idea of, oh, I understand the musicality of this guy's language and really came from my idea of understanding rhythm, melody, music. And so there seems to be still an idea of, well, I wasn't trained in it. So it's kind of, it feels like an exclusive piece of literature that isn't, it isn't for me as an actor. And so again, like not just with Val and I, but with other people that don't feel that they have a safe space to try to 
to read and examine and dig into Shakespeare's words. It's been incredibly great. And we've had international actors like read- English is their second language. And then having actors of all different backgrounds. We've had like comedians come in for, for comedy bears. There's musical theater. There's there's people who never been able to do Shakespeare and, and hearing them read it with there's such a freshness to it. Yeah. Well, Initiative 26 is all about accessibility, and you guys are well on your way to producing the whole canon. If someone wanted to see this, is it possible for them to see this? Absolutely. So we have a Facebook page, which is called The Canon Shakespeare 2016, where we post all of our upcoming readings. Um, to be fair, many of those updates are very last minute. Uh, and we will be, depending on where Val and I are in the world, we'll be taking the project with us. So at some point, I know we're going to be reading on the West Coast. I know we're going to be reading in the UK. We've really built a huge community in New York, but we look forward to really engaging new people. So we absolutely, absolutely encourage people to get in touch with us via the Facebook page. And you can come and listen and you can reach out if you want to read as well. We, we really try and give everybody the opportunity who wants to, to speak to, to do so. Absolutely. Trying to make it less daunting than just highly produced readings. These are more intimate and full of wine, so why not? (laughs) Well, we're delighted to pass on that invitation. And Sam Underwood and Valerie Curry, it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Val. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.